0: Any education apart from Jesus Christ is for us miseducation. And it produces not education nor an educated man, but a new race of barbarians who are today busily destroying their civilization. Humanistic education is the institutionalized love of death. Christian education, because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life is the love of life.
1: This is the Love of Life Podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney. Here we are another episode of the Love of Life podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are uh, with Matt Belleville. Uh, Matt is a worker in Southeast Asia. He's doing some great work over there. He's also an author, a blogger, and he's going to talk to us tonight about his story, uh, tithing, and maybe some other things as we go along. So thank you for joining us, Matt.
2: Yeah, uh, pleasure to meet you.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing right now in Southeast Asia.
2: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's drastically changed since COVID. Um, Here is, they were, had very strict lockdowns. So, you know, we couldn't go out more than one person from a household. That was like the rule. So, you know, And it's switched between that and like a little less of a lockdown, but it's mostly been that very strict level. So for probably seven months, there was like no going out with daughters, no going out with my wife. So ministry in that sense became just drastically different. So uh, that's when I started writing a lot more. Um, The international fellowship or church we had in our house kind of, broke apart because uh people went back to their home country so and really encouraged them to find groups that they could meet with there uh yeah so lately it's been writing studying working and then using i'm sure what we're going to talk about like uh tithes strategically to help people that really were already suffering before covid and then basically it all compounded uh Come, you know, businesses shutting down and what have you.
1: Yeah. 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 What kind of work specifically are, are you doing over there?
2: Yeah. So m- we try to focus on the stateless refugees, which are mostly uh, Rohingya and they're a people group from Myanmar. And um, three, four, uh, yeah, about three, four years ago, they started getting slaughtered by their government. And they started coming over on these boats of thousands of them. And generally, Malaysia had let them come in. Uh, Not so much anymore. So we want to help them. We work with somebody who started a Christian school um, here. And just getting them necessities, but also trying to help them so they can get to the place of... uh, independence help them get to the commute to works and so we use just basic things that with our job like what we do for our income uh, we want to use that with alms and gleanings and tithes to basically help other believers Uh, and then when we've met that quota unbelievers too who at least show good ethic like a good ethic so yeah Yeah, so that's what we've mostly been doing is helping them, but it is at the moment via distance. So, yeah, but helping the stateless refugees.
3: Are you doing that under the umbrella of a ministry or or are you and your wife independent?
2: Yeah, so when we first went overseas, we went back to where my wife was before I met her. So she was a year and a half. She was in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. And then she came home for furlough. I met her. We married six months later. And then nine months later, we were in Kurdistan. So uh, we went over under uh, a very small organization, Nashville, Tennessee. It's kind of related with the circle of like George Grant. Not not officially, but uh, called Servant Group International. That's what we went over. With to there, but then they didn't cover outside of that area. They're very basically focused and just expanded into Greece. And so it's kind of very natural to be like, okay. Uh and I'm not sure how familiar you are with like kind of the mechanics of all lot these mission oh, sh- mission agencies, whatever. Uh <laughs> all right. yeah. So the way the mechanics work is they will say oh, for a family of two to four, you need to uh, raise support for like $80,000. Now that's nuts for living here. Like living standard, that's like, you know, bougie, you know, however you want to uh, term that. But it's like, man, why are why is it so high? Why is that threshold there? Um, and I'm, you know, I have my thoughts. But anyways, we did not go with a traditional uh, organization because we felt like one to get in would for most of them would require going back to the US, which was a big expense and staying there for training Um, or because of the nature of what we were wanting to work in. What ends up happening is it just becomes so limiting in what you can do. Uh, I mean, even some like local Christians here will joke about uh, IMB (laughs) and they'll be like, oh, they have to they have to say, oh, can I drink some can I drink some uh, water? And they're like, no, 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 no. You can't drink water. You have to drink water, you know, with the D instead of the T when you say it. Uh, And like that's just how with certain situations and what you're working in, orgs can just be very. Um, and so, with the very undefined nature of what we're doing what we're doing and who we're trying to help, it just was like, okay, it'll get in the way. yes, there are benefits, but it just wouldn't really work for us, so that's why you know we just call ourselves tent makers,
1: no, yeah. and a lot of Christians understand what tent maker
2: means. Mm-hmm. yep, yep, that's
1: great how how you don't have to go into specifics with this, but how mm-hmm. How dangerous is this is this work that you're doing
2: um man as long as you don't look like you're trying to talk to the ethnic muslim community uh and you're not like hey i'm here to spread the gospel you know like all over the like you're just like yelling at your uh top of your lungs you're good. Um, there was a pastor who got kidnapped and disappeared who was doing those things back in 2016 when we first came and it was a really high profile case. So could danger happen? Yeah, sure. But I mean, I feel safer here than where I grew up, which was like near Flint, Michigan. So (laughs) yeah, I don't know if that helps. Sure.
3: Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about like your testimony, how you came to Christ? Mm Were you
2: raised in a Christian home? Yeah. So no, not raised in a Christian home, kind of that generic American God home. Um, Went to school kind of was like the loser who kind of fit into all the crowds, but then wasn't really liked by all the crowds. So that whole awkward thing and then come to, um, Biology, freshman year, guy does the ray, uh, uh, way of the master evangelism, like Ray Comfort. Oh, yeah. Stuff to me. Yeah. So just kind of like looks at me and he's like, hey, so you think you're a good person? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's what got me going to church and, you know, regenerate at some point. Uh, trained by a Reformed Baptist in a free Methodist church. Wow. Uh, yeah, ran my, ran my rounds in uh, egalitarian Nazarene church for a year trying to figure out and eventually ended up in a MacArthurite church did. Um, and, and at that point, after fighting with my parents for two, three years, uh, mom became a Christian, dad became a Christian. Then they start having my siblings. Um, wow. That's awesome. And basically, yeah, and basically I walked my family into this church, this um, Mount Morris Community Church was the name and they're MacArthurite. So um, all the studies are like MacArthur and the sermons are, you know, don't have anything at variance with MacArthur. Sure. And, but they just, that's when they said, Hey, let's do a full-time, uh, full-time pastoral internship. I was like, all right. So I did that for two years there. And the thing that kind of made me step down was the awkwardness of becoming (laughs) post-millennial and essentially Presbyterian, but not in function because I was unmarried and going to a Baptist church. So, uh, but it was really uncomfortable. One of the people felt pretty betrayed the old associate pastor because he was the one training me, went to master seminary, um, And then there was a couple of awkward situations where my soon-to-be wife was slightly backed into a corner to disagree with me. Uh, So we left there. Then we joined the CREC. Oh, yeah, sorry. CERC is here. CREC. I don't know what I said. Sorry. It's these acronyms here in Malaysia. (laughs) There's
1: a lot of them. Everywhere. You're good.
2: Yeah, so we joined the... CREC and um, just sitting under the sermons there being encouraged as a newly married couple um, and then doing some training stuff with the pastor and then they kind of lay hands on us and pray for us and we go because her old org asked her to come back because these are the refugees so we're like yeah let's talk with our elders you know just get and people that matter in our life just talk with everyone <laughs> like yeah so what i mean where do you think here and uh yeah we end up going and then we're there i'm teaching in a grassroots church helping teach through acts doing a series on psalms uh helping to start and administer a school and the refugee camp teaching economics and uh logical or sorry, formal and informal logic at the classical Christian high school in the city. And that comes to an end. We fly over to Southeast Asia, try to find a job, do a little bit of training here and there, and then finally end up in Malaysia. So that's kind of testimony plus historical (laughs) geographical uh, path right there.
1: (laughs) it's really good. Um do you ever do you ever make it home uh, back to the states at all or are you pretty much there?
2: Um yeah, I made it home cuz we were poor as all get out uh here, you know. We didn't we we didn't do really support method. We tried to always work and uh I had to come back in 2016 or 17 and sell stuff.
1: Mhm.
2: And then I came back again in 2018 because I had to sell more stuff and uh, worked with a buddy for two months uh, while my wife had our twin daughters, which was crazy. So that was part of the reason with going back and trying to get work and everything like that for those two months. So, yeah, I've been back twice to the U.S. since being in Malaysia. Uh, but that was two years, ago, uh, three years ago. So I haven't oh, okay. left here.
1: You've been there a while. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, let's uh, let's get into a little bit of the topic of tithing specifically. Um, okay. So, you know, some some believers might look at tithing and say it's outdated, um, or mm-hmm. they don't need to do it, or it's Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk up front about. Tithing specifically, why it's biblical and why Christians must do it. Mm -hmm. So
2: yeah, go ahead. All right. So the thing is, it's with scripture; it's a unified whole, right, with many parts. And so there's a lot of things that you can think about, which go like, "Oh yeah, tithing is just God's norm for funding social orders." Um. And so, you know, you can think about the fact that it's rooted in the beginning because, um, you know, early church fathers and, um, Jerome who translated it. And then there's also secondary meanings for the Greek word when it talks about a better sacrifice in Hebrews. And so there's some legitimacy to, to seeing that Cain and Abel's, uh, the contention of Cain and Abel's offering was actually amount, not what was offered. Um, because when it was a greater sacrifice in Hebrews that actually can be uh, rendered as quantitative, and that's how certain traditions in church, uh, church history have understood it. So you can see that there's the inkling of it there with uh, their offering. You have um, Melchizedek, right? Um, and the fact that that's the first time we really see the tithe in Scripture, like very clearly, and the interesting thing is, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, right? In in replacing the Aaronic priesthood. So, if a shadow got tithe, you know, got tied to why would we not tied to the actual the thing of substance, uh, the antitype? So, there's that you see. The collections in the New Testament, where he's essentially collecting the poor tithes uh, for the church back in Jerusalem, who's going through famines at the time. You have to remember they sold all their property, so they don't have any pre existing capital. Uh, everything's getting really tough there. They're getting persecuted by the Jews. And so you have him collecting tithes, and he's using words like, well, depending on your translation, ought. Should when I come, I'm going to, you know, and it's all these assumptions that this is faithfulness, and I'm gonna bring these over to Jerusalem to help our brothers there. Um, yeah, so I think there's there's that point, right? And then there's what do the tithes connect to? Because there's three in scripture. Um, you have Levitical, oh Levitical social is what it can be called. You have celebration festival tithe, and then you have the poor tithe. And so the thinking is like, what was the main principles there and what did they connect to? And so you have the Levitical Social connected to the Levites. Um and in my study and things like that, I believe the the Levites weren't actually done away with. The Levites are carried over by the deacons and those who carry out levitical functions uh so that would be um welfare it'd be even adjudicating cases uh art and uh amongst other things you know when you list it out there's about seven functions of the levites um and so when you look at those you see those functions were fulfilled by other people also in the old testament and Uh, Elisha receives the offering, even though only Levites technically were supposed to receive it. And why did he receive it? Well, he was actually fulfilling Levitical function. And so God doesn't condemn it and actually blesses it. And then he uses that to feed 500 people, uh, 500 hidden uh, prophets in hiding. So um, what you see is the principle of the Levitical function even those who aren't Levites fulfilling Levitical functions were permissible to give the offering to. Um, and then you see essentially the deacons fulfilling the welfare aspect of the Levites. Um, and you have that whole narrative in Acts 6. Uh, so yeah, so just kind of everywhere when you look at these, you just see the consistency of what was the purpose of the tithes. So to fund the social order to celebrate um, God's goodness and thankfulness together around the three festivals, which find their consummation in the Lord's supper. Right. So that's where you get using your celebration tithe for the fellowship of the community, you know, go all out on your Sabbath meals, uh, have conferences, um, just big BB, you know, big barbecues. And then you use that to pay for it, wine, food, music, you know, entertainment. That's what that was spent on during those times in Israel. And then you have the poor tithe, which essentially is the mechanism or one of the ordained mechanisms of fulfilling the promise of there'll be no poor among you in Deuteronomy 15.
1: Mm Yeah.
3: Where did you glean most of that understanding from? Obviously, you have mentioned a lot of scripture, but were there any mm-hmm. materials that helped solidify that in your mind, that it was obedience mm-hmm. and for you and for mm-hmm. today and for Christians? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, Rush Tithing and Dominion uh, was where I think I read the whole argument, you know, because I would read something of Rush mentioning the tithe, I mean, like, how's the tithe like that? Because I only knew the modern conception of, you know, send 10% to your institutional church, and that's it, right? right. Um, and then there's variations there. Some say you can send a little bit somewhere else. Some say, like, no, all of it has to go to the church, uh, which interesting. That doesn't come into canon law until the 13th century by the Roman Catholic Church. So, uh, <laughs> the The ten percent t- has to local. go to your local parish okay. that was actually didn't become canon law in church history until the thirteenth century Wow um, um, so yeah um reading about a r- rush journey, learning the history of the ties the 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 applications that's been used um, throughout the history of the church and even it being abused in the old Testament uh, like not being followed or um, when you understand those tithes, you start to make sense of a lot of the problems with what's going on in Israel during Jesus' time, just how corrupt the Pharisees were, the Sanhedrin, you know, that they were manipulating markets and um, stealing. They centralized the poor tithes, which the poor tithe was all supposed to be in implemented locally by personal individuals and in the Levites. And then they centralized it to the temple. Um, and, you know, amongst all the other poor mechanisms, right. Uh, that were to alleviate poverty in Israel, they kind of just abused, like not giving up the loans after seven years, you know, they would transfer it to the Sanhedrin and say, well, it's Corbin, it's God's money. So you still owe us. Yeah. Um yeah so you just what what you end up seeing is like oh man the the one welfare in the wider sense of the important things of a social order uh has always been something that God has provided a means to supply to his people um and largely those are the tithes and you know gleaning and Uh, poor loans and all those other things like that
1: okay so i know on a recent podcast that you were on you also broke this down really anecdotally can Mm. you talk a little bit about your story as Mm. you have experienced tithing yourself and gone through some of this um because now you you do observe or you do look at all three of the tithes correct i mean you don't look at and, and and you don't believe that we should just as Christians go okay it's ten percent and then that's all and that's the tithe and walk away you really believe yeah. that Christians should be observing all three is that right yeah
2: yeah that's 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 accurate and you know some people when they get that they're like oh man they want to feel the, like the best way to like nickel and dime. God, in some sense, even when they start to hear about the view. So they'll be like, okay, well, then I take 10% and I take 10% off the remainder and I take 10% off the remainder instead of like 10, 10, 10 from that initial amount. And it's like, hey, you know, I've done the math. It's the same thing. Basic principle don't try to nickel and dime, God. Just do one because you love them. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, for us, it was, um, again, Catching a whiff of the existence of the Tithing and Dominion book from his other works, from Rushdie's other works, um, and then getting that book finally when I'm able to go to the U.S. in uh, 2016, 2017, and then bring it back. I read it aloud to, you know, my wife while our, our daughters are kind of like crawling around, and yeah, we're just like, yeah, the arguments are solid the historical effect is pretty clear. Um, You know, like the Maccabeans, they basically eliminated poverty from them with the poor tithe. uh, And they had nothing but abundance that they just had to store up in the temple uh, because there wasn't no, there was no poor among them. So that guy kept his promise there. So we're like, all right, okay. We're going to trust God that, When we do this, he's going to be faithful. And so we almost went also with another person who teaches the three tithes, which is uh, Philip Kaiser. And he would say um, that you can actually split your poor tithe up across all three years, the whole three year cycle and just do 3.33% repeating every month of your increase. And we're like, no, we're going to go with kind of how the text uh, lays it out because we we want to assume that by being faithful and working hard in in every area of our life and tithing that god will bless us so that way our poor tithe is actually greater than if we were to do that other method with the every month method and so plus i don't really think it's right but <laughs> uh so, yeah. So we do that. We're pretty poor. You know, we're 50 to, a, uh, let me think here. Uh, I'm thinking dollars and ring it at the same time. Um, yeah, something like, uh, 50 or under dollars a week. It might even be half of that, but to, for all four of us to eat, to travel, to anything like that, go grocery shopping. We just had a very tight budget while we were here. Um and that was that uh, for like two years. So <laughs> it really rough, but you know, we trusted and uh we were always above what we were what our expenses were. So we were always tithing. And uh yeah, we get to that third year. Uh well, let me so before that, we, the blessing is the celebration tithe because we were able to have vacations even though we were poor pretty much across our normal life like for those two years. Uh, but then we get these little pockets of, yeah, we're going to go up to the mountains at, for the weekend and just rent a little place. And we could do that because of the celebration tithe. And so those were just really sweet times uh, amidst big struggles. And then we come to the third year, which would be 2020. And there's lockdowns, there's people losing their jobs. We happened to get a call from my wife's old pastor and also coworker when they started a charter school in Oregon eight years ago. And they're like, Hey, do you wanna work here? And I was like, Yeah, I mean, sure. And yeah, lo and behold, it's more than we've made since we've been together. Uh, And actually, it's only increased since then. Uh, So it's just God's faithfulness to bless his people and bless obedience. Uh, And of course, it requires hard work because, you know, obeying God in a fallen world, whether it's internally or external to yourself, Mm -hmm. is is a struggle. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, it was hard work, but God blessed it. And so just like you said, anecdotally, we just seen the power of following the tithes because essentially when you give the tithes to God, you're, you're just giving a portion of what he's already given you. And then in turn, the blessings that those tithes provide come back to you. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs>
1: yeah. so we're not talking about you give to God. Oh, what do you know? We're, we're millionaires.
2: Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm,
1: But what you're saying is God is ultimately faithful to Mm -hmm. his word uh, Mm -hmm. that will take care of us. Even even if we're tithing and even if we're observing Mm -hmm. all three of these tithes, he will will be faithful to us.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, yeah, one thing is we're very transparent about, Like, maybe this will make you guys uncomfortable, but we're very transparent about money just because we think it's such a taboo subject that uh, a lot of disobedience can hide there. You know, whether it's mismanagement or poor stewarding or uh, like what we faced here amongst other overseas workers is uh, like it's just like so clicky according to what you can do for fun, right? What you can expend for leisure, you know, together. And it just gets really like awkward and you don't have enough to, you know, bring two super nice dishes to the meal. And so you get kind of weird looks like that's really, you know, feel like you're in like James, uh, you know, like in the people he's ministering to. And it's like, Oh man, they, okay. All right. All right. Um, so yeah, so it's just really crazy. So we try to be very open about money. So like at this point in time, you know, our tithes are every month we take it out into the two, and then when we get back to our third year, into the third. Um, but like you know, each tithe right now is about eight hundred dollars, and so that gives us a lot of uh, a lot of resources, a lot of capital that we can then strategically implement for, um, God's kingdom. Right. You know, whether that's paying for some teachers to teach, right. You know, or that wouldn't have funds or they're, they're Christians with their volunteering or helping out, uh, businessmen that lost their jobs. And so they don't have anything for their families in, you know, countries like Vietnam, uh, you know, a bunch of families just don't have any income because they were running little hawker stalls, and all the hawker stalls on the side of the street making food had to get uh, shut down. Sorry about that. You're good. Um. So, so yeah, so that, that, that money, you know, when you look at, and the hard thing is the more it goes into your tithes, the easier it is to feel like I, I'm losing more. Mm hmm. You know, and that's a struggle. That's a struggle you have to go through because it's like, I'm losing more. It's like, no, you're giving back to God 10%. You're not losing anything. You actually, you look at the number, you think of the reverse. How much more has God given you? That's really the <laughs> the mindset you need to have uh, is it's like, wow, that's all I have to give for my tithe.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, he's the he, he's he owns the cattle in a thousand hills uh, and he owns every single meal you eat. Yeah. But you only give them a tenth. Sure. And then if that tenth keeps growing, the answer isn't to get stingy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the answer is to be like, wow, thank you, God.
1: Yeah. So let me ask you this. What do we do about oppressive governments, over taxation, uh the mm. state's control? I mean, here mm. here, here in America, as Rush Junior mm. points out, and I fully agree, property tax is wrong. In fact, property tax is a sin. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's definitely not something. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. The fact that mm-hmm. I can never fully, truly own a home or a car mm-hmm. because I'm going to mm-hmm. be taxed on it till death or I get rid of it or whatever is actually a violation um, of, of, of just being human. Uh, it's not. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so what happens when, say, taxes become crazy and they are for the most part and yet God still requires this, so how how do these how, how do we walk in obedience to to the Lord when the state is becoming oppressive
2: yeah uh, I mean that's a really good question the the one thing is to realize when they do that, they are storing up judgment because even if you believe so if you you know my view along with Fugate and uh would be like a head pull tax, a set head pull tax is permissible. And the head pull tax in the Bible in our time would be about $70 per male, uh, um, 20-ish years and older, right? So so that'd be a very limited state. But again, the point is, it's a curse to have oppressive taxation uh, at the tithe or higher. uh, And you get that from samuel and so the thing is you have to realize that while they're doing that it's not just a struggle you have to get around or work through or figure out uh because that's how we especially as people who realize it's wrong we tried to do that right we tried to you don't you know russia talks about not doing the tax revolt so it's like you know I still pay i still pay my taxes but i tried to figure out how to pay the least you know and in all the legal loopholes they have, right? Like that, <laughs> because it's God's money for me to steward and I don't trust the state with it. And so the state steals the money and then they missteward it. And now they are heaping judgment upon judgment, right? And that's the very place of where the Judeans were, right, in Jesus's time. And when Mary talks about like, oh, you've you've put down the oppressors and you raise up the poor, that is a very socioeconomic, uh, reality that is happening, and it legitimately is because not all of Israel gets destroyed. Who gets who gets destroyed? Jerusalem, who is head up by people bribing the Roman Empire, they're selling sacrifices over and over again and not sacrificing the temple, so they're denying atonement. Uh, you know, they're uh in order to the poor people are basically getting denied access to temple services because Uh, you have to pay two regular shekels to, to, to get a temple shekel to then buy the animals to sacrifice. And so you just have this ridiculous racket, right? Going on. And it's like, Oh, okay. I guess what we're going through isn't, you know, new Mm -hmm. and it was even happening. And the, and what was supposed to be, you know, the, the city that was like the paragon of righteousness, uh, And so the answer isn't, well, do we not have to? The answer is like, do I trust God that he will judge sin and bless righteousness? And so the the answer definitely can't be, I'm going to disobey God in the tithes Mm -hmm. because other people are disobeying God and it hurts me, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the whole sin for thee and not for me kind of mindset, right? And so what you have to do is you have to go, All right. Okay. First, what God requires of me, I, I will do and all the hurt to the things that God requires of me, uh, all the hurt that the state provides and the prevention is actually their end. They're speeding up their end. They're putting more weights on their back and it's going to crush them. Uh, and so the best thing I can do in this moment is to pursue obedience And so you look at that and you say, oh, man, they're taking the first fruits. So they're already getting that. So I'm going to tithe to God as if those first fruits are still there. You know, that income tax that they shave off the top. I'm still going to tithe like that is not gone because they are not the Lord. Mm -hmm. Right. If you do that, practically speaking, you are denying the covenant lordship of God. If you tithe off of what's after the state takes its income tax or whatever comes out of your check, depending on the state you're in, you know it varies. But you know, before you even get it, your money's pilfered. Um, the other thing is when you're dealing with things like property tax, realize that this is a tool that that their tool for their filthy lucre, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. going with some KJV, uh, so they got their they got their their dirty money uh, yeah. right? Kids. yeah, <laughs> just been reading it recently. sorry, so Good. I might just sound, say some old sound stuff for some people listening. uh <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so you have you have the, that dirty money right with property tax. um Well, the thing is, with property tax, you look at God, God does not tax pre-existing capital. They So the state is a harsh master uh, because they love to tax pre-existing capital. So, you know, that's something God does not do. He limits himself in the things that he demands of us uh, because he knows (laughs) that it's wicked. So basically, we can't let these wicked, oppressive things in front of us Deter us from walking a blessed life, which would be a, a life in obedience to God. And so, when you do it, you go, "Okay, they are." Sorry, if you can hear my family, sounds sorry. like they're having fun. Okay, no, it's all, right. <laughs> all right, good. Okay, so so we have the tides, and it's like, okay, so the you know you're taking 10 percent for two of the three year cycle, and what you're doing is, you are actually building the infrastructure, at least through the social tithe, the Levitical tithe. You are building the social structure that can stand when the un- the ungodly structure falls. And the thing is, it's not going to fall. Here's the problem: I think prolonged lumbering, stupid beast of a state will continue as long as there is a pocket of service that is ordained by God for Christians to fulfill. As long as that pocket has a void and the state steps in, they are serving better than us.
1: And tell us just briefly about how the state steps in and essentially Mm -hmm. is doing the work of the church. What is it supposed to be doing? Because you're right, the state has stepped in. And tell us, Mm -hmm. you know, briefly, tell us what those things that the state is doing.
2: Yeah. So like what I write about mostly is service and usually that has to do with your neighbor and the poor. So largely with the welfare system, you know, uh, you have churches that will find out uh, old person's poor in their church. And so they go to the, they go to help them sign up for welfare. You know, it's very common. There's actually like, that's a diaconal service in big churches Uh, and that is uh, awful. So In that sense, we talk about, you know, because the thing is, right, the tyranny is divided up amongst categories for them, right? And you have the department of this tyranny and the department of this oppression, and so on and so forth. And so you have the, you know, the department of welfare, or maybe it's called different thing in your state. But what ends up happening is they are fulfilling something that us as Christians are not, right? And I can, and it's not just institutional churches. There are roles because of deacons of welfare. And so the people who say like, oh, we're not supposed to be institutional churches shouldn't be involved. It's like, well, no, there's actually an office for it. So, yeah, you are supposed to be involved, even even institutionally speaking in society and the welfare of a social order. But largely all the laws for the alleviation of suffering and poverty and a hard providence, is the family. Poor tithes, gleaning, poor loans. Who issues those? Where do they come from? The family.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, even even there, you see that the, the the family is really the backbone of social order. Um, like if you think about, you know, call it sphere sovereignty, um, you know, uh, spheres of influence, if you want to use something more trendy, whatever. So what ends up happening is without the family, you don't have strong churches. Without the family, you don't have strong, uh, you don't have strong civil governments, right? And so what ends up... Uh, so on, let me get here real quick because I think, yeah, I get really frustrated and uh, I don't like to be uh, guided by my frustration when I'm talking. So, like, just stop there. Okay. So, really, the thing is if there is service, there is power. And that's where power comes from, that's where dominion comes from. When Adam was told, go and tend and serve the garden. Uh, that uh, that word uh, tend is actually to serve, and so his dominion was by his service in the world under God, and so when we deny uh, the acts of service in certain realms it 's a pocket of power, and so anyone who steps in has a legitimate claim to that power, in the sense of what we've given up, because it's a legitimate realm for authority, for dominion, and so the state illegitimately holds it because it's not its function, right? Just like with education, or how meddlesome they get into, you know, uh, corporate settings and businesses. You know, pick any part of life, and the state's there. So what ends up happening is if we step out of it, there's that pocket of power, someone can come in, take it. And then at at least as long as we are not doing anything, they're going to still have that authority, right? Like when we tell people like, oh, give up the welfare state, don't do this, don't do that. The very legitimate response is actually, well, what are you doing about it? Mm -hmm. that is a very legitimate response and if the swath of the main swath of christianity is like well nothing that is a very condemning answer you know even if they have a heart of a socialist (laughs) the condemnation still rests with us um so and of course that would go across all the things not just welfare but again uh and that concept of Dominion by Service really hit home for me in uh, George Grant's two books on poverty, which are Bringing in the Sheaves and In the Shadow of Plenty. Uh, Those two books really are what just pounded Dominion by Service into my head. So
1: Mm, That's good. I haven't read those books yet, but I definitely need to get those. Do you have a question on this?
3: I guess if you're just starting out and you're like, mm. oh, wait, there are three tithes. So mm-hmm. we understand most largely the 10% of your income. And then mm. you've talked about like the festival tithe. Mm. What does that practically look like? And then mm. the every three years, how mm. to understand that? And then um, how do you find good places to give your tithe to? And what is that yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the really practical stuff is, okay, the social tithe you give to people who are, I mean, you can give to teachers at Christian schools who largely are some of the most underpaid people fulfilling godly functions in a society, you know, these Christian teachers. So you could use your social tithe to give them gifts, right? You know, Uh, and even, you know, Proverbs talks about giving gifts to judges for doing a good job. And we like, that seems really sketchy to a lot of us nowadays. Like, well, is that bribery? And it's like, no, it's like, you're doing great. It's like, Hey, don't give my kid a good grade. This is why I trust you. Right. You know, I know he's a C student. I want him to work harder. Uh, but you, you give those tithes to the people fulfilling those functions. Um, you can use the Levitical tithe for the education of your own children if you're homeschooling, because, the children are not your property ultimately, right? There's something that you're going to take out of the quiver, put in the bow and launch at Satan. Uh, and and when they get married, they become a third family, right? It's not just your family. You actually have three families that are related now, but they're separate and distinct. And their main goal is not the pleasure of parents, but the glory of God, which can conflict at times. Uh, even in Christian you know, multi-generational families. So the claim on their life is ultimately God. So when you're educating them, you're not educating back to receive later. You're educating them to be more competent soldiers in the future. Uh, So you can use it for your own homes, uh, homeschool, uh, a way that you can use it. If a lot of the church community in your area is taken care of is single mothers, single mothers, you know, they can't really send their kids to private school. They, uh, they can't homeschool, they have to work. Uh, So one thing is you can have, you know, call yourselves like call them educational experts, but like, you know, the real veteran homeschoolers and stuff essentially offer services to families that to where the mom is actually a hard worker uh, uh, because of Providence, of course, um, whatever happens, she was abandoned or she was, wasn't a Christian, but you can use that as the, the, you know, don't give room for people to criticize the claims that you make about the role of the church and welfare and the role the state the station have. So take the children of those. So, uh, of course, when I say take, like they agree to that. Right. <laughs> but uh, you bring those into the homes of already homeschooling families and you pay for the curriculum and you get a roster of those people in your church who are willing to do that. And it could be a certain times, it can be a certain amount of days a week. And essentially that Levitical tithe pays for those resources and also the time of that woman who's serving in that function. Um, So just like, there's a couple ones in education. You could do it for those who are working on in poverty relief, either in your area or outside of your area. Again, Elisha, the guy had to travel far from another city to get the offering to Elisha. Uh, and so what you have is anything that fulfills Levitical functions, adjudicating cases, teaching, preaching, uh, taking care of the poor, health, if there's uh, doctors that volunteer their times to run a cash clinic for people, uh, and they're and they're doing it for Christian motivations, you can give the Levitical, you can give the Levitical tithe to them because they're fulfilling uh, a function. So in in all those cases, right, what you're doing is you're providing the the basic uh, things needed for a social order and uh, education, welfare, right. And and uh, <laughs> I missed the third one that I just say. Sorry. Healthcare. Um, yeah, education, healthcare. Yeah, and welfare. There you go. Thank wow. you. Yeah, that's right. See, you should do this.
3: <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah. So you have all those roles. You can fulfill them, and that's how you build them, and that's how you start the godly social order. Then you move. To the celebration tithe and that can be used for you know bringing faithful servants with you to go celebrate in god's thankfulness so you know bring your bring your pastor and his family to go get a lodge out on the coast or something i'm not sure where you guys are located so or up in the mountains or by a valley sure <laughs> but you you take the servants because that's a principle in the tithe uh which is um Uh, remember the Levite and remember the poor and widow. And both of those are included with the, the Levites also included with the poor tithe and the Levite and the widow and orphan are also included with the celebration tithe. So the whole point is just getting together and be thankful for redemption and God's provision. And so really any setting can work for it. Going out with dinners, having people over your house for dinner, uh, you know, we practiced the agape feast when we when we were doing our home church. And so uh, our communion actually was a culmination of a meal. So we were all eating together. And then when we would break bread, it would be after sermon during a meal at the culmination of the meal. And then we break bread together. And so the our celebration tithe would pay for that meal. And that meal was because of, being poor for so long, uh, was like the best thing we ate all week. So at really good times. Right. Um, so you could use it for that conferences throwing, you know, neighborhood block parties. Yeah. You know, if you're in an urban setting and you just let unbelievers come, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm roasting, we're roasting a hundred pound pig here. You want some and, you know, cut it off, give it to them. And basically it's a, it's evangelism by joy. Uh, because even the foreigner and sojourner were supposed to be remembered with the celebration tithe, Uh, and, you know, so throw the big thing, invite, you know, your crazy uncle who loves all the conspiracy theories or your aunt who's like a flaming liberal. And it's like, Whoa, that's great. I'm very interesting ideas. Hey, you want to come taste and see how good God is. (laughs) 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 Um, so yeah, so basically so many uses for that. Um, then you get to the poor tithe and that is that is supposed to be to someone who is destitute poor, meaning if there's no outside assistance, they're going to be destroyed by providence largely, right? Like that's like, if you were looking at the natural order of things, it's like this person is not going to get out. So the poor tithe is usually given in a communal setting because it was a testimony and uh it also holds to accountability so it was given usually at an event and it was very open i'm giving this to them and the accountability there is uh like social accountability is normal in god's law uh because disobedience you know, it's supposed to affect your social standing and who wants to do business with you. Um, So they would give it to the person. That person's responsible not to missteward God's money. You as an individual, as a giver, had to be able to discriminate who is worthy poor. Who should I not give this to? So there's a double accountability on both recipient and giver or tither. Um, so that's kind of the principle there. It also eliminates, uh, uh, welfare slavery because it's a one-time giving. You don't just give like, Oh, I'm going to break it out over months because no matter how, how well that person understands the principle, the thing is experientially, it's a very strong thing to build in those regular checks. And it, builds up uh you know they expect it they start to believe that it's theirs and it's something that they they deserve When it's not the case um i mean that's what happens with refugee camps you know and i don't know how many times i saw it. if something comes in they're angry because it's like late by three days and it's just like yeah they're justified in hating everything uh, and that's just what happens. Even though all these people before they own businesses and, you know, they were judges or <laughs> t- teachers or government officials, whatever. So um, it doesn't do that because it's a one-time gift. It doesn't allow animated, uh, you don't, you're not allowed to be anonymous. So, uh, and then the other one is it, what ultimately what it does is it fosters, uh, a, uh, not a social order of responsibility because if people start seeing that person can't judge character, right? From for the person given the tithe, they, they don't know how to judge character. I'm not going to trust them to enter a, a business partnership because I don't trust. They're going to be able to judge the character of their other partners. Right? So if they can't judge who they should give God's money to. How am I going to trust them to, you know, something I put my stake into and make business deals. So, uh, it sort of spreads not only responsibility and accountability to those individuals, but then it also breeds it amongst the whole community. So community oriented in when you give it, it's, um, it's not broken out across separate payments. And, um, it it is something that either brings blessing or cursing depending on how you do it. So then you get to here, right. And we're, we're in our world and people are separated. It's like, okay, maybe, you know, your church doesn't follow it. Well, you can't at it the, it's like, you can't not give the tithe, right. Just because other people aren't right. If you become convicted of the position, you know, that would be disobedience. So it's like, okay, but I'm going to give it. And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to shy away from who I give it to. It's not going to be something secret. You know, if it comes up in conversation, I'm going to be open about it, you know, because basically you want to invite people to hold you accountable, right. As a Christian, because that's one way you show the light on the Hill, right. It's like, oh, that person's accountable and responsible and self-governed and they follow God. So when you give it, it It's not a secret thing, you know you don't have to hide it away. Um, you should be pretty open about it if it comes up uh, that you follow it because it's not a bad thing, and it again, in the original setting, it was supposed to be done at an event. Um, you have the destitute family you give it to, and what you can do, the thing that goes beyond just the giving is you can offer helps. Uh, Do you want some help in how to manage it? Do you want some help in how you could budget out to last longer? Is there any skill that you're hoping to pick up? I can talk to some businessmen I know. Um, Different things like that. So there's many helps that you can give, but the point is once you give it, you have no right to dictate how they spend that poor tithe, right? you were supposed to judge beforehand whether they would do it well. Um, But of course you can provide help and training to that person you give to or people, because you don't necessarily have to give it all at all of it to one single family unit. You could break it up, but it is a one-time giving.
1: Yeah. I thought this was interesting that you referenced on your podcast. You brought up the scripture where Jesus says, um, you uh, you won't always have me, but you'll always have the poor among you. And I mm-hmm. thought your uh, the interpretation that you brought because some people might think, okay, well, you know, we're always going to have the poor among us. Well mm-hmm. what was Jesus really saying in context with that? And as Christians, can we be optimistic uh, at all about a future where if we were all obedient and the church mm-hmm. continues to grow, that the poor will they be always among us or is there a way like the Maccabean period, as you referenced earlier, mm-hmm. um, for that to, um, for it to be different.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, God's word doesn't return void and he made a promise for obedience. So yeah, I hope, I hope we can be hopeful about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, if we're not following it, no. So, I mean, I, then that's us say that's empty hope. So. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if we're following it, we should totally be optimistic that God will keep his word and uh and his promises because we keep his word and trust His promises, right, so you have that uh regarding uh jesus' um statement of You'll have the poor among you, you know, he was talking to he was talking. Amongst his uh, disciples, but largely in the context of the confrontation with Judas, right, what is he doing? What is Judas doing? Judas is pilfering from the poor tithe right he 's pilfering from the offering box uh, and uh, what you have is Judas is actually a a mini picture of the unbelieving Judeans ruling Jerusalem at that time, because uh, uh, Iscariot means son of Cariot, and that is a that is a city in Judea. Judas is the only one who is from he's the he's the only one from Judea of all the disciples, and that means every time him he and his first name are mentioned or his last name are mentioned. What ends up, what ends up happening is he will, it's focusing on his geographical location. And he's, it's the only one that has that kind of focus of where he's from. And the only time when Judas is used and it doesn't mention of, Iscari- of Iscariot, right? It's to say, hey, he's not Judas of Iscariot. oh this judas is not the judas of iscariot so everywhere judas is mentioned it's always a of him what is his nature who where is he from where does he come from and that's because he is a picture of the bureaucratic oppression that was happening in israel right and um you know you have them centralizing the tithe and pilfering the funds and what do you have what do you have him doing Centralizing the tithes and pilfering the fund, like he's like, we could have put that into the tithe, right? That is his very answer. We could have done. Don't you care about the people? (laughs) What's your problem, Jesus? You know, uh, and and yeah, he's just a total, you know, black bear turn around. He's a dirtbag, right? Just like all the Judeans were that were using their authority to oppress. Uh, you know the poor so you have him disobeying the commands right to keep the tithes uh, and basically being honest having integrity not stealing a bunch of other commands too but you have this person here and he goes i'm doing the complete opposite of that and so uh, when jesus says you'll have the poor among you this is a pronouncement of curse of a negative sanction. You, Judas, and unbelieving Israel will always have the poor among you. And we can't go, this is a maxim for all history, right? Because the you Jesus was referring to is gone. So the only the only people that actually the only one that had a positive promise of perpetual poverty ooh, uh, is Israel. However, everyone else has the potential promise of if you do all that I've commanded you, you will have no poor among you. So that's a very optimistic setup. No one else except for the people that are already wiped out had the positive promise of poverty, right? But everyone else has the opportunity of poverty, you know, of it getting eradicated. Mm. Um, So I think that is a very... Optimistic place to be in the history of the world. Yeah, um, yeah,
3: yeah. Um, is dirtbag the KJV
2: term? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. I thought so. so it's the nuking <laughs> version. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I, I maybe it was the TNIV. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's,
3: it's easy to kind of imagine if all Christians mm. were observing this, there would be some mm. radical change in our Mm -hmm. society, in our structures. Um, But God can still bless the obedient, even if they're Mm
2: -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Definitely.
3: That's kind of a good to you're obeying God and he's going to be faithful to his word, even if Mm -hmm. you're the only one that's Mm -hmm. observing these things. Mm -hmm. But then there's potential blessing to be, you know, quadrupled Mm -hmm. if everyone's right. And like you said, right. it's not an excuse to not obey because other people <laughs> aren't, but right. Know yeah. That God's faithful and big enough that he can even bless one person's obedience. If they're mm-hmm. the only one, I feel like we see that throughout scripture too, with mm-hmm. you know, Noah, he is one of the few mm-hmm. that is faithful and God is able to preserve him amongst the wicked, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. And righteous lot. And there are others, yeah. but, um, yeah,
2: yeah. or Job. Yeah. I mean, look at Job. Job was the only, his wife went against him. Uh, His three friends are basically trying to do a kangaroo trial because what you end up realizing is a ton of people are watching that trial at the end of the book. And it's like, Hey, all these bad things are happening. We need to find a scapegoat. So let's put Job on the docket and prove he's guilty. Right. And like, but he is still faithful and he's like, listen, like someone who didn't love God. And he even uses as an argument uh, to one of the friends. And he says, would I want to be judged by God if I was evil? Because the whole time he's like, God, come and judge me. I'm going to die and kill me now so I can get judged by you. right? Because I know I didn't do anything. Right. So he is being righteous. He wants God's judgment where everyone else is viewing God as kind of like a mechanical like slot machine, right? You put in this and you get out that, uh, you know, just like his one friend in like chapter seven is like, is, Oh, your kids died. Cause they sinned. Yeah. Uh, how, what kind of comfort is that? You know? <laughs> so yeah, like that very point being righteous, even when not only are people just not, but also, very much against you That's really important and i think one thing like two things i just wanted to bring up before we like i'm wrapping this up i'm not sure but i just want to cover these because i think they're important is one is the cheerful giver yeah. uh the whole point is of cheerful giver is not that hey you don't need to give it all there's no responsibility to give if you're not happy the point is like You need to be happy when you give because that's real obedience, right? Because the heart has always been included with fulfilling the law. And that's why he's like, I don't want your new moon festivals and your Sabbaths, right? Because your heart is wrong when uh, Isaiah is talking. So the same thing applies here. Paul is just referring back to that same indictment from Isaiah when he's like, be a cheerful giver. Don't give of compulsion do it cheerfully. That doesn't mean like, well, I guess I don't have to give the God anymore cause I'm not really happy about it. Uh, yeah, that's just bad. And then, and then the other one would be, so the big one is because a lot of people assume that the tithe that we know now, they would say that's the closest thing to the Levitical tithe, uh, which is like give 10% to your church. Right. And yeah, that is probably if that tithe has to be equated with one of the three, it's probably what it's closest to. Well, the thing is, they'll say like, well, the Levitical function stopped, and I kind of mentioned with you guys, like, yeah, the deacons fulfill it, and then individuals who fulfill those roles are operating in that spirit. Um, b- but also, when you get to Hebrews and he's talking about the new covenant, and he, he's chat, he's basically saying the, the, the impermanence of the priests. He's talking about a very specific priesthood. He's talking about the priesthood of Aaron. Now, the priesthood of Aaron, you would think like, well, the the Aaronic priesthood's gone, the Levitical priesthood's gone, but really, which one was contingent upon the other? The Aaronic priesthood comes out of the Levitical priesthood. So if a branch gets chopped off of Aaron, if Aaron gets chopped off, you know, covenantally, Uh, because of the Melchizedekian uh, high priesthood, Um, why would the Levitical function stop? Especially when Paul is criticizing the role of the high priest, sacrificing animals and uh, uh, offering up to God and all those different things. Those were all Aaronic priesthood functions within the temple. And then you get to, well, what's the difference? And it's, well, we have the new priesthood, the new high priesthood of Jesus with the coming of the new covenant. And so when we think about the priesthood being done away with, yes and amen, if we're talking about the Aaronic priesthood. If we're talking about the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood is still with us. Just any of the temple functions that they have are gone, right? And and this is where we have to be careful. Like we can't, you know, the whole debates on what continues and what doesn't with the law, Uh, we can't just go, Oh man. Well, okay. Anything ceremonial is wrong. Well, it's like, well, no, because there's a ton of ceremonial law in Leviticus 19. uh, You know, if we want to say Leviticus is like all ceremonial law, well, there's love your neighbor as yourself. There is don't mix yoke. That's still here today and you know, and it's a purity law. Uh, you have, um, oh what's, uh, what's another big one. So yeah, you have love and neighbor, you have the don't mix yolk. Um, you have, uh, like I'm with Philip Kaiser and you basically have some sort of food law with, uh, the acts 15. And when they say like, Hey, don't eat blood and it will be good with you. Right. Like, that is actually a, a covenant blessing that's being proclaimed over not eating the blood of animals. And so it's like, yeah, I can't eat blood sausage. I don't eat, you know, I don't eat sunde, which is Korean blood sausage and I've heard it's delicious. I don't eat it. Uh, and, and that is a purity law or a food law, but it seems to be highlighted as hey, this one continues and why, because power is in the blood, life's in the blood, and only God and Jesus have the realm over the blood over life right and dictate terms you know what requires death penalty what doesn't all that stuff so that principle is still there even in that actual hey don't eat blood because it'll be good with you um so when you look at those you go okay and even a temple function of the Levites still continues because what was one of their things that they had to do was protect the temple right so outside of the temple anyone approaching it uh, wrongly or for bad purposes was to be cut down. That's one of their, that's one of their commands for the priests to guard it. Well, the temple is no longer a geographical location, but it is God's people. And so, yeah, churches, the, the deacons ought to be armed for if someone comes to try to harm a church. Why? Because it's actually obedience because they are, they are the epitome of the new Testament Levite. And so, yeah, they ought to be carrying during worship because you're, you're, you, yeah, you will, you willingly die when you're evangelizing and going out against the culture when you're going into the pits of death. Yeah. You die for Christ. However, you defend yourself when you are doing, when you are doing, when you're rendering, rendering obedience to God, right? Like that's not the time to go like, Oh yeah, let's die let's let's okay we're gonna give up ourselves no it's actually can condemn a condemnation on the church leadership if there's a shooting at their church and it was unprotected and people die it's pretty bad so um yeah i think what you have there is basically the levites continue with this right and so we have to be a lot more diligent and a lot more studious and a lot more careful. When we go, we don't need to follow this law. Uh, Like we have to be really, really sure that when we say that. So.
3: Awesome. So you've also written a couple of books and you have Mm -hmm. a blog. Um, Where can people find that information if they want to read more? And I know specifically one of your books Talks about some of the practical application Mm of these things and how we sort this out. Um, Could you tell us where we can go for that?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, right now, everything is just on Amazon because I don't know enough to put it into a physical book. So, uh, yeah. So they're all on Amazon. If you search Matthew Belleville, um, you can find all my books pretty easily. Um, And so, you know, there's, let's see here. Postmillennialism defined, that's a primer or hope defined. That's a primer on postmillennialism hope engaged. That's a, that's a book that focuses on uh, a biblical theology of our participation in postmillennialism. So why are we involved with postmillennial victory? And so it's just doing a biblical theology of that. I have the hands that will restore humanity and it's basically an overview of historical service that the church has done. Basically, like we are God's hand in history, uh, being the being the vehicle of re- restoring right through teaching and serving. And then uh, the first one I published, what is uh, your neighbor and praising God, and that one has to do with essentially what is kind of theonomy faith for all life, Christian reconstruction type of book. Uh, It's like 20 pages and it's an exposition of Psalm 146. Don't trust in princes. And then right around the the command not to trust in princes are, Hey, God takes care of all these people, the oppressed, the poor, the bowed down, the widow and orphan, uh, the jailed. And, like we we often want to be very gnostic when we read the psalms even amongst reformed people and even amongst uh you know theonomists reconstructionists and go like oh yeah like well this is like about our salvation and stuff and like that's what it means for us now and it's like yeah sure that that motif is very true but uh those are also very real people that still exists today. <laughs> and the way that God cares for them is through his vice regents, right? Through his His servants. Um, and then I give like 20 plus applications on how you could start doing those things in your neighborhood. Like helping each of those individual groups of people. Um, the blog is uh, reformedexpressions.com. Um, I was posting uh, my teaching through Ecclesiastes there uh, going verse by verse to Ecclesiastes post mill reconstructionists. If you want to approach like that, you can check it out. Um, largely what I'm doing now is trying to do at least uh, doing a weekly or more post uh, called crumbs from the reading table. And you can kind of see like, you know, basically what kind of books have made up my brain. Um, you know, so recent one uh, had, Klaus Schidler and Kuiper and Pierre Viere, uh, they were kind of in there. And uh, yeah, so that's Reformed Expressions. And if you want to ask about really practical stuff or um, like my real like laid out full arguments for how these things continue and why, you know, feel free to email me at matt at com. And, uh, yeah, totally willing to take any questions or how could we apply this or even how do you do it? How do you track your stuff? How do you apply gleaning today? Um, cause we do so. Yeah. Feel free to email and ask.
1: We'll probably be emailing you. <laughs>
2: <Cool>.
1: <laughs> yeah. uh, so, some of this is uh, rather new to us. So this mm-hmm. is very helpful for sure.
2: Yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for coming (laughs) on, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney.
0: It is our duty through our schools to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death.